Hello, and thank you for joining us today for this Ropes and Gray podcast. This is one of a series of podcasts discussing key issues of interest in the regulatory and compliance space, focusing in particular on private fund managers. My name is Joel Wattenberger, and I'm a partner in the asset management practice and co-head of the private fund regulatory group, along with my partner, Jason Brown, who is joining me today. We will be discussing the regulatory consequences of two recent enforcement actions involving management fee calculation and offset issues and electronic communication record keeping requirements, respectively. This podcast will be a regular source for updates in the regulatory and compliance space. And with that, I will turn it over to Jason to discuss the first case. Great. Thank you, Joel. So the SEC recently brought an enforcement action against Global Infrastructure Management, a private equity advisor, for one, failing to properly offset management fees, and two, making inconsistent statements in fund documents and to investors about how management fees would be calculated following the partial disposition of fund portfolio companies. I'll start with a brief summary of the two issues and ultimate outcome, and then provide you with some thoughts on key implications from the case. First, failure to properly offset management fees. The advisor failed to properly offset the management fees of two funds and did not have reasonable policies and procedures in place to ensure that management fees were calculated consistent with fund docs. Specifically, the advisor failed to offset advisory fees for one fund over a 10-year period and portfolio company director fees for a second fund over a three-year period, as required by relevant fund documents. Prior to the enforcement settlement, the advisor voluntarily reimbursed both funds, totaling roughly $5 million. Second, there were inconsistencies in fund docs regarding management fee calculation upon partial disposition. The fund's PPM stated that, following a partial disposition, the management fee would be based on the fund's remaining interest in the portfolio company. So any partial dispositions would result in a decrease in the fee base for calculating the management fee. However, the fund's LPA stated that the management fee would be based on each LP's capital contribution that was used to acquire the portfolio company, meaning that a partial disposition would not reduce the management fee. So the LPAs and PPMs were inconsistent on this point. One LP inquired about the inconsistency in 2011. The advisor informed the inquiring LP that partial dispositions would reduce the management fee but subsequently told several other LPs that partial dispositions would not reduce the management fee. Ultimately, the advisor did not reduce management fees following partial disposition, consistent with fund LPAs, but contrary to PPM disclosures. Prior to the enforcement settlement, the advisor voluntarily reimbursed the inquiring LP by recalculating management fees based on partial dispositions. The SEC determined that the advisor failed to have reasonable policies and procedures in place to confirm that fund LPAs and PPMs were consistent on key points, including how management fees would be calculated following partial dispositions, and to ensure that advisor personnel communicated accurate, consistent information to LPs. As a result of this conduct, the firm violated sections 206.2 and 206.4, of the Advisors Act and Rules 20647 and 20648 and agreed to pay a $4.5 million penalty. So, what are the key implications? Well, first, 
This shows the SC's continued emphasis on the calculation of private equity management fees. For the past year or two on exam, the SC is carefully reviewing the base for calculating the management fee to confirm it is calculated in accordance with the LPA. In fact, it is now a standard first day request on exam to list all partial realizations and how they affected management fee. And unrelated to partial realizations, there also continues to be an emphasis on other portfolio company transactions, such as dividend recaps or sales of subsidiaries, as well as write downs and write offs and whether those should have affected the base for calculating management fees. If you have not done a review of your practices regarding the calculation of management fee in light of such events, I would recommend doing so. It will likely be a topic on your next exam. Now, second, practitioners take the position generally that the PPM cannot amend the LPA, but can be used to interpret the LPA. Here, the SC takes the position that the PPM should, in effect, be read as amending the LPA if it gives a better deal to LPs as the LPA provision in this case was more generous to the advisor than the PPM position. It serves as a warning to make sure that all fund docs are consistent as the SEC will compare them and hold you to the highest standard. Most clients rely on outside counsel for consistency of the LPA and PPM, but I would recommend that someone at the advisor engage in the same exercise. And as it's less common for outside counsel to review certain marketing materials, such as DDQs, for consistency with fund docs, it heightens the obligation of the advisor to review those. Now, I'd also like to note that we see in this case two common themes in enforcement actions that are worth noting. The first is that remediation does not prevent an enforcement action in fines. While the SEC states that the remediation was taken into account in determining the fine, the fine was still substantial. And from a practical perspective, the greatest harm from enforcement is often the PR implication. Coupled with the very substantial fine in the recent enforcement case against a broker-dealer for failure to archive certain messages, as will be discussed by Joel in a few minutes, this case suggests that, as we anticipated, SEC enforcement under new SEC Chair Gensler is returning to a more aggressive posture reminiscent of the early to mid-2010s. In this case, the SEC seemingly expects advisors to have written policies and procedures to compare fund docs to each other. As the SEC has suggested that an advisor should have such policies, as well as the more commonly found procedures on confirming that offset is calculated correctly and making sure that personnel are communicating accurate information to investors, it is worth examining your compliance manuals to consider whether such provisions are needed. Jason, this case focused on inconsistencies in fund documents relating to fees and expenses. Curious whether you've seen other areas where inconsistent disclosures have hurt clients. Uh, yes. Um, another common example occurs in the ESG space, where we have seen this issue arise several times on exams, where the advisor's statements about ESG in a DDQ or another piece of marketing are stronger than those in the PPM. And the SEC holds the advisor to the higher ESG standard in the DDQ. You can spend a lot of time carefully crafting your ESG disclosure in a PPM, but an inconsistent statement in other docs, such as a DEC or a DDQ can override that. And as a result, it is critical to get those other marketing docs reviewed as well for consistency. 
So with that, I would turn it over to Joel um, to talk about electronic communications and related record keeping matters. Great, thank you, Jason. So the obligation of registered investment advisors to maintain certain electronic communications and how one satisfies those obligations in an environment in which there are an ever proliferating number of ways in which folks communicate with one another in writing um, has become a source of interest for the SEC and a source of concern for our clients for some number of years now. Um, we wanted to flag for you all that last month in two separate but related enforcement actions, the SEC and the CFTC together levied $200 million in penalties on a leading financial firm for violations of record-keeping requirements applicable to broker-dealers under the Exchange Act and to swap dealers and futures commission merchants under the Commodity Exchange Act. And um, in addition to those financial penalties, the SEC order also required the firm to engage an outside compliance consultant to review the firm's policies, procedures, training, and surveillance practices with respect to electronic communications. These actions did not involve registered investment advisors or the Advisors Act record-keeping rules, and we'll talk in a bit about the differences between those rules and the rules that were actually at issue in this case. But they are further evidence of the SEC's continued focus on the use by regulated firms of texts, WhatsApp, other forms of instant messaging, and other communications platforms, as well as the use of personal devices for business communications. So just to go over the facts with respect to last month's cases, the orders indicated that over a period of at least three years from 2018 to 2020, employees of the firm often communicated about securities and commodities business matters on personal devices using text messaging applications, including WhatsApp and personal email. Uh, these records, these communications were not preserved. The orders indicated that the failures to comply with the firm's policies were firm-wide and happened at all levels of authority. And further, that supervisors at the firm routinely communicated using their personal devices. The order recounted thousands of examples of texts, group chat messages, and email messages that were sent during the period relating to business matters and not preserved. An interesting question in these cases always is, how was the issue identified? How did the regulators identify that there was a problem here? And it appears, based on the orders, that in this case, the answer is that during investigations, potentially of other firms on various matters, um, the SEC staff obtained communications from third parties that reflected numerous texts and WhatsApp messages that had been conducted by those third parties with uh, personnel of the firm that was the subject of, of, this, of, of these cases. So subsequent to that realization, the SEC alerted the firm. The firm began producing responsive messages, but the firm also informed the staff that certain responsive messages had been deleted and were unrecoverable. And just worth noting here as an aside, that of course, it's not just registered broker-dealers, and uh, registered swap dealers and futures commission merchants, but also very much registered investment advisors that routinely find themselves communicating with third parties that are themselves regulated. It's not unusual in our experience to see questions arise on exam or investigations that 
either clearly reflect or appear to reflect information that the SEC has received from third parties in connection, presumably uh, with exams or investigations involving those third parties. So always worth bearing in mind that in terms of how the SEC may identify these issues, it's not just through regular way exams, whether they be comprehensive exams or sweep exams, or perhaps from whistleblowers associated with a firm, it can also um, arise just by virtue of the SEC's examination and investigation authority over third parties. Uh, Joel, how does this compare to prior SEC actions in this area? Yeah, great question, Jason. Um, the SEC brought a very similar action in early 2020 involving another broker-dealer. That case involved a much smaller firm. Um, the fine was also much, much smaller. It was only $100,000 in that prior case versus, again, $200 million in, in, in the more recent cases. And it's hard to say what factor or factors um, really motivated the difference uh, between the, the outcomes. Um, certainly reasonable to think that the significant difference in size of the firm's the question uh, was a factor. Um, also possible that the change in administration was a factor. And as you mentioned previously, Jason, we're seeing a difference between the Clayton SEC and the Ginsler SEC in terms of the aggressiveness and the intensity, both on the exam front, as well as the rulemaking front and other fronts from a regulatory perspective. Um, but I also think, you know, this was just an opportunity for the SEC to deliver a message. Um, and they have had some real concerns about uh, record-keeping practices around electronic communications across a range of different regulated entities for some time. Um, and I think this just produced a um, opportunity for the SEC and the CFTC to send a message to regulated firms uh, that this is a hot button issue for them, that they take very seriously firms' obligations in connection with um, maintaining electronic messages. Joel, in light of these cases, how should private fund managers be thinking about their responsibilities regarding electronic communication? Yep, another good question. So in terms of the takeaways, I think the first thing is just to reiterate something that I mentioned at the outset, which is that the record-keeping standard is broader for certain other regulated entities than it is, than it is for registered investment advisors. And as an example, broker-dealers are effectively required to preserve all communications relating to their business as such. In contrast, registered investment advisors are required to preserve certain specific categories of communications, which includes all recommendations made or proposed to be made or advice given or proposed to be given. But what we've experienced is that in practice, the SEC will interpret that Advisors Act obligation broadly and we'll also expect registered investment advisors to both understand how their personnel are communicating, both internally with one another, as well as externally with third parties, and that registered investment advisors will have an ability to surveil communications to ensure that they are, in fact, maintaining the records that they're required to maintain. Therefore, in practice, it's very difficult in a registered investment advisor context for advisors not to have some means of effectively archiving all substantive communications relating to their um, fund manager or other investment advisory business. But in thinking about how to move forward in this area, I think it's uh, first and foremost important to bear in mind the risk alert that was published by 
what was then OC, now the Division of Examinations, back at the end of 2018. It was specifically focused on registered investment advisors and electronic messaging. That alert really set forth in a fairly comprehensive fashion what the SEC's expectations and sense of best practices are in this area. And amongst other things, that alert contemplated that RIAs would have procedures for moving exchanges with third parties that were initiated by third parties on prohibited communications platforms onto firm-proved and archived platforms. The alert emphasized the importance of regular training and attestations from employees, as well as the need for an ongoing dialogue between the compliance function at an RIA and the investment personnel as to how clients are seeking to communicate with the firm. And finally suggested various means of overseeing electronic communications. Some of those I think in practice have proved to be more practicable than others, but a good starting point in reviewing your own firm's policies and procedures in this area is to review not just these most recent enforcement cases, but also take a close look at that 2018 risk alert and ask yourself the question, um, how would our policies and procedures, how would our training and testing uh, look in the context of the SEC's expectations as set forth in that document? And, and I'll just close by noting that we routinely see the SEC ask about this question on exam as well. I wouldn't say this comes up as a topic on every exam of a private fund manager, but it is a fairly common question to ask um, what are your practices around archive and communications? What sort of media do your personnel use in connection with communications? And potentially we see uh, requests for productions around these topics. And so it's important to understand what the questions may be and what your answers would be um, uh, in light of these most recent cases. And with that, I wanna thank you all for joining us today and also thank my co-host, Jason. Please watch this space for more podcasts like this one, where we will continue to keep you up to date with key regulatory developments. For more information on the topics that we discussed or other topics of interest to the asset management community, please visit our website, www.ropesgray.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we've discussed, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can also subscribe and listen to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.